Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. And today, episode focus on poetry and Jewish spirituality and the book of poems, Two World Exists by Yehoshua November. My name is Yakir Englander, your host today. In contemporary ultra-Orthodox Jewish tradition, art in general and poetry in specific are not part of the life of the community. Some of you probably remember the sensitive and unique book, My Name is Asher Lev by Chaim Potok, which deals with this subject. There is a fear from art for different reasons. For this community, art is connected to European Christianity and therefore to the complicated bloody history of the church and the Jewish community. Art is a way to touch life in new ways where some sects of the ultra-Orthodox theology focus for many generations on the next world, the afterlife. Art for them is connected to material things in the world where theology to the spiritual life. Art brings questions to the way we lead our lives, questions that can shake traditions where the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community is dedicated to find some clear ways how to live in a world that scared them mostly after the Holocaust. For these reasons and some others, the ultra-Orthodox community dedicated itself to, lead to life with the divine by praying, by practicing the Jewish law, the halacha, and by learning the Jewish text. Therefore, it is fascinating when we have an artist, a poem, who is an ultra-Orthodox. Yoshua November is, a, is the author of two poetry collections, God Optimism and Two World Exist. His work has been featured in many magazines as a New York Times magazine and on national public radio. November teaches writing at Rutgers University and Turo College. Okay, this is a poem called Two Worlds Exist, uh, the title poem for the book, and it's uh, three sections. Section one. If I were an ice suit, I can fly beneath the sunset and not burn, my son said from the back of the van as we drove over the ridge beneath the pink sky. And if I were an ice suit, I thought, perhaps I will finish my days without roasting in the oven of what one human does to another, or the furnace of what God does to man. Once in shul, I sat across from a rabbi who spoke of his suffering. He said, I don't have feet to stand on to complain. But I remember standing in a room 30 years ago, the Rebbe raising his voice to call God to task. A week earlier, at the ritual bath, the rabbi realized he had forgotten his white Sabbath shirt. In the sanctuary, I watched him stand up to pray the silent prayer in his undershirt and long black coat. What role do these moments of minor embarrassment play in a life of greater miseries? Could the rabbi concentrate on his prayers? And if so, what did he ask God for at that moment? Two, if I had worn a cage of ice around my heart, it would not have cracked as I stood in the cheder's narrow hallway and heard the principal's matter-of-fact voice say concerning one of my children, we cannot help her. If I were a band of silence around my head, I will hear nothing, what my youngest daughter hears. I would like to rise up and lodge a complaint before God, but each morning I wake late for prayers and rush to catch up with the other worshipers. Once my wife turned and asked me, do you think this happened because God wanted to show us what innocence looks like? Isn't she happier than the others? Then she turned her face back to her closet, and cried into her blouses. Three, two worlds exist, the higher hidden one and our earthly realm. Everything that occurs in this life flows down from the hidden world. That which appears good descends through an infinite series of contractions until it fits within the finite vessels of this world. That which appears tragic slides down unmitigated from the hidden realm, a higher, unlimited good this world cannot hold. So the mystics explain suffering, 
if all comes from above, from where no evil descends? Is this something one tells another who is suffering? This is something one does not speak, but tries to believe when life no longer seems possible. When I was younger, I believed the mystical teachings could erase sorrow. The mystical teachings do not erase sorrow. They say, here is your life. What will you do with it? Thank you so much, Joshua. Um, this is the first poem from Two World Exist. Um, Joshua, can you please share with us about your choice to open your book with this poem? Um, I guess uh, this was kind of the theme of the poem or the topic of the poem, some of the concerns I address were really um, some of the major pressing concerns in my life at that moment um, and trying to uh, kind of grapple with them. Um, and so it seemed a kind of a fitting uh, topic. Um, it is a very personal book in a lot of ways. Um, so, um, you know, in the, in the process of writing this book, uh, my wife and I uh, learned that our daughter uh, lost her hearing. Um, and then, you know, it goes through a lot of other kinds of uh, personal challenges, family challenges. Uh, but this seemed to be the right point to contextualize the book, both in terms of um, my own personal uh, challenges and raising a family and hearing difficult news and then trying to also kind of juxtapose it to other people's uh, suffering and also to put it within the framework of theological uh, discussion of what suffering means and how does a person approach suffering what is the and, and uh, coming out of a Jewish and Hasidic framework what's the the uh, theology um, that uh, that that uh, what the theological approach to those issues so I thought it was a kind of poem that touched on a number of central points and I think that many of the poems in this book in a very gentle and very vulnerable way I think it touched the connections between theology and life in a way it's like the way how life appears to us and then and and please correct me if I'm wrong or say it in your words one of the things that I I, I feel during this specific poem and also other poems is that you almost try to bring the theology in order to bring an explanation to life because the questions are so big um but then something in you do not go all the way with the theology right Yeshua there is something there that you say like I understand that there is explanation but and right. the but is that right that it's our daily life it's the pain that you you share can you can you say it in your words how you yeah how you I, I mean uh, I don't know if I'm second guessing the theology um, as much as trying to uh, juxtapose the theology with actual lived experience uh, and see how the two hold up together it, because it seems like you know when you live a life of spirituality a life of faith a committed life it's a, it's the life of the book and so much of your time is spent inside a text um, that I mean, even if it's a, it's a human narrative like like the, the Torah or the Bible you kind of don't see it that way after a while you just see it as a kind of a text um, and and as a as in containing commands and um, uh, lifestyle guidance so that it becomes kind of stripped of the human experience for whatever reason that's and also you feel that it's kind of this represents this very high bar a person's supposed to live this kind of uh, pious uh, austere life and then you you think about your own life and your own shortcomings and you wonder if you're ever really going to get there and, <laughs> and then you start to wonder you know is this really speaking to the human experience so I, I, I kind of try in, in the poetry a lot to take a theological idea and then hold it up against a kind of applicable human experience um, I think in this particular poem, When I, when I kind of challenged the theology, if that's what I was doing, and I was saying, you know, this is not something that you tell somebody else, uh, I, I guess I was trying to um, explore the idea that um, some theological concepts are, are very hard to swallow, um, and therefore 
perhaps uh, that's something that we struggle with ourselves, or maybe that's what we're asked to struggle with ourselves, but it's not necessarily our place to, um, to use the theology to comfort somebody else who's suffering. Uh, that's, you know, that's kind of presumptuous of us, or maybe even insensitive. And maybe the theology doesn't even want us to do that. Maybe the theology says, you struggle with this, um, and when it comes to somebody else, it's not your place to dismiss their struggle or make light of their struggle in, in any kind of way. Uh, that's just, it's something you tell yourself, but not necessarily somebody else. And, and I think that that's a, a lifelong struggle that a person of faith has. Um, and I guess um, I'm also interested in poetry um, as a person of faith because it seems that often people of faith are seen as overly simplistic and, you know, simply uh, give themselves away, surrender to some kind of overarching uh, philosophy, uh, religious belief, and then they have no troubles in their life. So I, th- I always think poetry is a good place to represent the human experience uh, of Hasidic life, of my life. And it's also not just for the audience, but for me, it's a place to kind of negotiate the, the schism between the theology, the perfect, perfected uh, expectations, and, and then the actual life. So it seemed like a, a, good, a good starting point. Yes, yes, thank you. I, I wonder, Yoshua, um, as you grow up in, in, in the yeshiva world, in the, in the institute where you, you dedicate yourself to study um, Jewish text, um, which kind of poetry you are reading? Uh-huh. Well, and, and I see that you smile, so I want. <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I guess I I I'm, I don't I'm not really uh, living in the citadel anymore. I remember when I was in the I, I called the citadel the yeshiva environment because it's kind of this really insular, um, sequestered uh, space. And I did spend some time there uh, after graduate school. Um, I I went to the University of Pittsburgh for graduate school and got an MFA in poetry, and then. Uh, at that point, I actually um, became very intrigued with Hasidic teachings, um, and I went to to a yeshiva for a couple of years after um, after I finished my graduate work. And uh, I, I lived there in Morristown, New Jersey, with the yeshiva location. And um, I studied there for two years, um, and I remained there after I studied, but. Uh, after that, I actually, after two years, I kind of had to decide in my life if I wanted to be a, become a rabbi or go back into the academic world. And I ended up um, going back to teach um, creative writing uh, and writing. So uh, um, I, I guess that you could say, you know, that in a certain way, I mean, uh, this, you know, religious Jewish framework, but I'm also uh, outside of that world. Uh, for, for much of my time. Um, uh, so, you know, maybe that's also another way that the two worlds exist title applies because I'm kind of living in, in um, this, you know, Jewish world, uh, religious Jewish world, um, but also, you know, kind of orthodoxy, but also mm-hmm. uh, in, in, a, in a secular world. I teach in Rutgers University um, writing and also in Turo College. Turo is actually a, a Jewish college, and mm. it's like a, I teach in the evening program there. And it, it's a, for, for women, actually, the program I teach at. So that's also a very kind of different populations, the, the uh, students in, in Rutgers, New Brunswick, and the students in, in Turo. And, and do, do you feel sometimes as a translator, as someone who lives between world and try to translate? Translate the experience? Translate the experience to each other. Maybe in order to help others, but maybe even more deeply to help yourself to hold these two worlds together? Yeah, I I suppose so. I I think that one of the things you have to be wary of uh, as a poet is having an agenda. Mm. (laughs) Because I I think it's just so hard to write a good poem. And uh, (laughs) it's so hard to write a good poem that I, I... don't really want to assign myself a kind of task or role. Uh, I, I do, as I mentioned, I do like to compare my life to, to the theology, uh, but I think that's something that kind of just happens because, again, I'm, my life is a life where a lot of time is spent in Torah study and study of Hasidic thought and then also, you know, outside of that realm. So that's just kind of, I think I'm an autobiographical narrative poet, so it, mm. I end up touching those, those, those topics. Um, 
probably by default I end up becoming a, a, a translator of one world to the other because I'm in both worlds, I guess. And, and, and again, because I think that my work is pretty narrative and autobiographical, um, it, it then you know, presents the, this other world that maybe uh, you know, uh, people in the secular, um, this secular world don't necessarily see or don't have an intimate window into. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think if it happens, it's not necessarily um, deliberate or, or you know, something that, that by design. I can read another poem, yes, uh, which kind of maybe, ref- uh, it's called Self-Portrait. It's the last poem, and maybe it gives a kind of uh, snapshot of uh, what my life is like in, in these, you know, ve- uh, go- weaving in and out of the, you know, religious Jewish orthodoxy and then secular life and, and back and forth yes. between the two. So it's, uh, it's called Self-Portrait. Page 69. Between one and five children have crawled into your bed at undetermined hours throughout the night. You rise and head to the kitchen in darkness, press the coffee button, wash your hands with a ritual cup, say the morning blessings, drive off in a modern silver car. Before morning prayers with an accountant, you study the Hasidic text that claims God's concealment in this world is not real but more like a lofty idea enclosed in a parable for a simple audience. God is present just the same within the finite world. After prayers, a truck with spiked wheels drifts into your lane and you forget what you learned the previous hour. Envision your children growing up without you, wife marrying another man. In a basement office with no windows, a student, Tarantula tattoo climbing down his forearm, hands you a poem about the things his girlfriend did with his friend on spring vacation and asks for suggestions because he is a deep believer. You forget you wear a Hasidic beard. Think of yourself still as a young man in a college cafeteria trying to get the dark-haired stranger a table away to look back at you. In the silver car once more, You listen to a recorded lecture that claims God's unseeable essence is most present in this lowly realm. You notice the absence of your easy pass tag as you near the bridge. Reach under your seat. Consider a million possible stories of concealment. Find it in the glove compartment just as you enter the toll booth. The lecture goes on in the background. In this world, God is just hiding from himself. On the Bay Parkway, Hasidic men walk along the water with their wives. The sky is orange and red. You think of your own wife cutting cucumbers for your lunch. You should thank her, stop off and buy something, but you'd be late. The elevator is broken again in the building the Jewish night college rents from the high school. Out of breath, you enter the classroom, walls covered with pictures of Spanish teachers in sombreros to teach poetry to seminary students in long, dark skirts. They are not sure what to make of you or their lives. But when you discuss the famous poem about a father who rises early each morning to heat the frozen house, one begins to cry. This morning, the discourse said everything in this world mirrors and stems from its spiritual source above, like signifier linking back to signify. What does the race through the streets to beat the men to the bridge where they work all night represent? You park the car, walk up the dark pathway to your front door. There is light in one window. Thank you. It's everything together. (laughs) (laughs) You really bring it all together. It's like there is no place. It's... A few things came to me when I was reading um, this poem a few times in the preparation. One is that there is almost no place to breathe because life is it's like the essence of busyness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and second, which is that the distinct, and this is what I love about your poetry, as, as I feel it, is that you don't 
go to the you don't really agree to the distinction between religious life and secular life I think that you say it's like in a way it doesn't matter it's like maybe I under I understand life in a Hasidic Jewish way you understand it in your Catholic or your secular whatever way but at the end of the day we are here living with busyness and And still breathing and love and making life how you say it <laughs> uh, yeah I, I think um, that the poetry maybe could be said to be very earthly or to engage it's a kind of world embracing poetry um, I think actually that 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 um, thinking that posture actually probably comes out of a, a very specific you Hasidic thinking or Hasidic idea um, and and then you know borrowing that kind of frame I suppose in the poetry at least in my life I think I failed to do it on a day-to-day level but uh, in, in the poetry I kind of trying to look at the mundane through that spiritual lens the, the specific idea is actually really rooted in, in a midrashic teaching there's a, a midrashic teaching uh, which discusses you know the The plan for the universe the purpose of the universe um, and, and that Midrash states that um, the world all of the existence the highest worlds and the lowest worlds heaven and, and everything in between um, was all created because God the divine desire to home in the lowest realm in Hebrew it's called the dear of attack that uh, and that was the first stirring that's the divine impulse everything really is all about the creating a home for God in this world. So in that theology, then uh, heaven becomes secondary in the, in the world, the earthly world becomes primary. Um, and since that's like the first stirring, according to the Midrash, that's the first divine impulse, uh, therefore this world is, is connected uh, with God's essence more so than even the heavens. And therefore I think that studying that theology um, consistently studying it and delving into it um, then kind of uh, um, leaves me with a kind of in a headspace or uh, a lens that I kind of looking for the divine in the mundane um, and and um, and trying to make a home for God in the mundane so I think in, in certain ways um, maybe you said that it's kind of like it's not insistent upon the Hasidic thinking and But maybe it's that this particular brand of Hasidic thinking is very um, mundane centered and therefore it seems like I'm putting it to the side but maybe really um, the, the thinking itself is world embracing in certain in certain ways there are sure. limitations uh, yes. but but, uh, but uh, it, it's this notion that that it, uh, it's all it's you know each individual's job to find the divine in the ordinary which I think also is Um, is carries over into into contemporary poetry in general I think that a lot of poetry is interested in finding the mysterious the infinite in the finite in the mundane and ordinary uh, and now the poets would not call it the divine of course contemporary poetry is largely secular um, but it, it, I, I often feel like a contemporary poet is locating some kind of spirituality in beneath the quotidian, beneath the surface of everyday life, but they're just not calling it to the divine. I even sometimes wonder if what I'm talking about and what they're talking about is different, I don't know. <laughs> what they're sensing, what they're feeling beneath the surface, I, I, I don't know. One of the things that, um, you know, life teach me by, by uh, delving into spirituality and mostly mysticism is that at the end of the day, we touch life maybe with different tools, But what we try to touch and the questions that we ask, we, we ask the same questions. It just that maybe different traditions um, exercise more on a specific tool. And definitely with the Hasidic tradition, the Jewish um, mystical that, you know, it's one of their um, new gifts that they brought to the Jewish tradition is not to run away from the body, not to run away. And not just to state in theory but to really be there with the body and to try to find 
life, the divine, and then, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I, I, I wonder if, um, do you hear about um, Hasidic or, or Orthodox Jews who write to you or come to you and say, sometimes I want to pray your poems? <laughs> uh, well, I've actually uh, um, been contacted by some people who told me that they bring the poetry book to to uh, prayers with them, let's say like in the high holidays, and they maybe read it as a companion. You know, the prayers could get pretty long. Yeah, <laughs> uh, of course. So, so, so yeah, I, I've had the experience where people have told me that they read it maybe between prayers or um, as inspiration. Um, uh, I never had somebody say they wanted to use it as a prayer. Um, a, a composer actually set it to music, which was uh, interesting to hear. It was kind of uh, avant-garde music. Uh, <laughs> strange uh, to, to see that. Yeah, but I, I liked it, but it was interesting to see that um, set to that kind of music. Um, so, yeah, people have, have told me that they use it for inspiration, but never as like a prayer itself. It's it's so interesting. So in so in Israel now um, there is a whole revolution of um, inside some part, portions of the Orthodox world, and you see first of all there is a whole new wave of of poetry that is created by Orthodox people, and some of the poems became part you know part of the reading um, even I know on Yom Kippur, and and another side is that you have some secular poets like Yehuda Michai and Leah Goldberg, that their poems became a secular people, but it became part of them, you know, prayers. Right, um, yeah. Yes, which is fascinating. Um, I, I wonder, Yoshua, um, one of the poems is um, The Life of Body and Soul. And I, I would love if you, you, you would read for us, um, because something there about... The distinction that we are so used to between body and soul is collapsing or is okay. in question. Okay. Let's see. Uh, okay. That's um, page uh, 46. And uh, it, it actually references um, a story from the prophets. Um, there was a woman named Hannah who uh, was barren. Uh, she she couldn't have children, and she um, went to the temple at that place. The, the at that time the, the permanent temple wasn't built. They had a kind of a, a temporary structure in a place called Shiloh, and she um, went to the to the um, sanctuary to pray, and she prayed uh, with a lot of fervor and at great length. And um, the priest, the high priest there, accused her of being drunk. And he tried to kick her out of the of the sanctuary. Um, so that's one of the uh, some of the context in the background. Okay, it's called uh, the life of body and soul. Or on rare inspired days, the life of soul and then body. And sometimes both suffer together, like a man with a bad foot limping through the airport, late for a flight to a holy city. One always wants to climb a ladder back into the weightless air. The other pulls down toward the cinder blocks of the world, spends long hours squinting through desire's lace. And Yaakov is the soul, and Esav is the body. But once, on a tape of a Hasidic gathering, after the voices of rabbinical students had stopped singing, I heard a crackling silence. And then an old rabbi said, the soul is God's greatest opponent. It wants always to break free of the body, leaving the world barren of holiness. And once, many years earlier, a barren woman entered the sanctuary in Shiloh and prayed so long and intently for a son that the high priest who presided there thought she must be drunk going on that way about her desires with God in the room. But in the end, the high priest was wrong, and the laws of prayer mirror her prayer, her desire reflecting his desire for the life of souls and bodies. 
And sometimes the mystics say the body's desire is really the soul falling out from underneath. Yaakov reaching into the world with Esav's hands for the lot the soul has descended to sanctify. And always that ascetic, the soul's high priest, mistakes the body's desire for nothing more. So that when, for example, I saw you standing at the soda machine in college and my body was awoken, the high priest of my soul, having just returned from a year in the Holy Land, said, this is just a young man's desire for a young woman with long, dark hair. But in the body's version, there are five Jewish children and our life together. It's one of my favorites. Yeshua, you do so much in this poem. So much. You take all the distinction we know and you say, it's like, I'm going to show you differently. You take Esso as, as someone that in the Bible we think about him as a, a very materialistic and Yaakov as a spiritual. And you challenge it. You take the desire of a woman to a baby, but actually she teach us in the Jewish text later how to pray. We pray according to her desires that the priest doesn't understand her. And I love that you mentioned Shiloh because it's the same letter Shin Lamed Hey as Shela, which is it comes to her. And and the questions of and then you bring your life and you bring like your you know first love and, and what do you see when you see your, your wife? Um it's such a gift. It's a whole new theology in a way. It's not, it's not that the essence it's not there, but you bring it to our contemporary language. And I think that you bring to everyone, like an, it's like almost a gift. You can be connected to that too. Like It's enough that you are falling in love, you can be in these dialogues with us, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it really um, stems back to the, the thinking that I was talking about before, how the purpose, at least in the, the Midrashic teachings, and then that was adopted by certain uh, Hasidic uh, schools of thought, was that th- this world is the, is really the center stage. This is this world is really what God wanted most, um, and not the spiritual, and not the heaven. So, and that, as a kind of um, general overall uh, philosophy, and then um, in the Hasidic teachings, uh, especially in Chabad Hasidic teachings, that kind of um, philosophy that it's almost like a school of literary criticism is then applied to every biblical narrative. And then it kind of turns upside down some of those narratives because in this philosophy, really the body is higher than the soul. The the body is actually um, really the object of God's choice or love more so than the soul. So then the readings, uh, you know, follow suit in in each kind of story. Like um, you mentioned Asa. Asa is you know, traditionally seen as a villainous kind of character, um, and Jacob is the righteous one. Um, but in, in the in the Hasidic teachings, really, Esau uh, represents the body, and he actually had had much greater potential than Jacob, because um, uh, he comes from a kind of an unbridled kind of uh, physical space. But um, like like they say, you know, when you when you um, yoke uh, the cart to the ox, then you can plow with much greater uh, force than if you don't use the, the ox. So the ox is like the body, so to speak. And when the soul can connect to the body, um, then the soul can go to places where it cannot go on its own. Uh, it also really speaks to an uh, idea I think that's very popular now, even in secular culture, the notion of a tikkun olam, which is a rectification of the world. Um, the mystical root of Tikkun Olam is this notion that there is a kind of higher spiritual world called the world of chaos, the world of Tohu. And in that world, there was very intense divine light. And that light, the divine light that was shining there was so powerful that it shattered the divine vessels holding that light. And then all those vessels then fell down into our physical world, the thinking goes. And therefore, in each physical item in this world, there's a kind of spark of holiness. 
are a spark of the divine. And when a person engages with the world, um, then he can uh, release and rectify and elevate that spark back to its higher source. If he, you know, engages with it in a in a kind of with divine intentionality or with helping somebody else, motivated by kindness, then then that spark can be released. And then it's also believed that you know each person has his or her designated sparks. The soul comes down and it has its particular sparks, and the person's life is kind of orchestrated so that they'll meet up with those sparks and have those opportunities and to, to elevate those particular sparks. So, so with that thinking, the only way to kind of rectify the world to complete the Tikkun Olam project is to engage with the world. Um, and if you don't, then you kind of are, are you know, going counter to your divine uh, purpose in life. And do you need the Midrash, the Midrash and the Jewish Hasidic theology in order, like, why do we need this explanation? Why we cannot just um, be there because she wants a child? Right. Like in, a, in a way, like I, I, it's so fascinating because I wonder what would happen and, and uh, if Hannah, the, 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 the woman from the story, she would not say, she bargained with the divine, right? She said, if you bring me a child, I'm going to dedicate it to, her, right. to you back. Right. However, she could say just, I want a child. And, and there is fascinating in, in the, in the um, old Jewish text, in the Talmud, they say, they don't even come to the explanation, I'm going to give it to you back. They just said, she looked at her body and she says, every part of the body needs to be used because it's, now you can say because it's the divine body or because this is my body. And there yeah. are parts of my body that I cannot use because you don't give me a child. So please give me a child. So I, I wonder about, can you, why is the need for the theology? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess in, in, the, in the Hasidic thinking, in, in this theology, um, the, this, you know, this female heroine, Chana, desired a child. Um, but that desire is actually just a kind of echoing or reverberation of God's desire. Since God desires the body and God desires souls in bodies and God desires the world, um, and everything and everybody is all really just a mirror of God, therefore um, she felt that stirring and she felt that echoing uh, in her own self. And that was the voice of God or the echoing of God or the echoing of her soul, which is a part of God. Um, uh, reverberating in the world. So I, I think it's meaningful that, you know, it kind of suggests that there's a divine unity underlying all of creation. Uh, and, and each person's actions and stirrings are really just a echoing of that divine uh, underlying unity. I think that world, the world looks very different when you think of it that way, when you look at the external world um, and you say that beneath, you know, this physical layer that I'm seeing is like a divine spark. I think that everything takes on new meaning and has a kind of weightiness and gravity. And, and really, actually, it, it kind of uh, allows you to have a kind of equanimity in life to know that, that, that all things are really divine and, and everything is really unified in that way. And I think that this story, this narrative, uh, brings that to the fore in, in, the, in a very forceful way, because it's most surprising where it's telling us even our physical desires could really be echoing the divine. Um, I really based a lot of this particular poem on, on a specific, um, one specific teaching uh, by the Lubavitcher, by Menachem the Menachem, where he talks about this narrative, and he quotes a, a, a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov is the founder of the Hasidic movement, um, uh, who... who passed away in 1760, uh, he was born in 1698. And um, there's a, a verse in the, in the Psalms, in the, in the Tehillim, which I'll say it in Hebrew, then I'll translate, it says, um, gam nafshem in, in our hunger, in, our, in the thirst, the soul is swooning. So the literal meaning seems to be, you know, when you're hungry or you're thirsty, you're about to faint. But the Hasidic reading, the Baal Shem Tov, 
introduced is that in our thirst and in our hunger is actually the soul calling out for the divine spark that's trapped in the food or in the drink. And when we then use that, um, you know, in the right way, we, we get, gain sustenance from the food and then maybe we help somebody or do something positive, then that divine spark, which I spoke about, the tikkun olam idea, then it, then it gets released. So it, it's really surprising, I think, and, and revolutionary to suggest that in our bodily urges in certain ways is really the divine calling out. And, you know, the trick is, I guess, um, that um, one has to ultimately, or one endeavors to ultimately show that it really was a divine inclination, a really divine spark by using the physical world in positive ways and kind of divine ways. And then you kind of prove that it wasn't all just about gratification, but the body and soul really could be one. And there's a kind of unity between the two. And I think that one of the gifts that you bring, even in this poem, is the end. Because at the end, you teach us that actually, even when you see a woman and you you critique yourself, it's like, is it really only, is it only for the divine or it's only for myself? You don't understand because deep inside, five kids are already there. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that this is one of the gifts that I find in many of your poems that you give us to be human. Like you understand the fragility. It's like, it's so easy in a way to mean well because you understand how much it's, um, you try the best and it's really hard and at least for me, this is something that you, you gave me in many, many of your poems. A lot of hope in the daily life and, um, you know, in the vulnerability. Um, it's actually interesting. In that, you know, you spoke about how we might have a kind of, quote unquote, like religious voice inside of us that kind of pushes us away from the physical. Or as a person of faith, you, you know, abiding by certain religious structures, you tend to eschew the body. Um in this uh, poem and in the teaching that it derives from, you, you have this figure, the high priest, and the high priest is assuming that, that this woman, Khan is like drunk because she's too self-indulgent, too preoccupied with the self and its wishes. Um, and, and in the teaching that, that this poem derives from, um, uh, it states that everybody has this kind of high priest, this uh, you know pseudo-religious uh, or like self-righteous voice inside themselves that says, this is wrong, this is bad, it's self-indulgent, but, but really that voice is the one that's wrong. Um, and, and in fact, in one of the notes in that teaching, it, it talks about how this person, this figure was a high priest, and he was kind of living only within the temple grounds or in the grounds of the sanctuary, and he didn't, he kind of lost touch with other people's humanity because of it. He couldn't touch base with people's daily life, with their physical concerns, um, and, and we all have that because I think, you know, when we think of religion, we think of that high priest as being the face or voice of religion. But I, I really am drawn to the teaching and, and, and got expressed in this poem because it kind of tries to turn that upside down and say, he's actually the one that's wrong. And you have to kind of uh, push against that voice, which is a kind of, I would say, uh, an oversimplification of religious life. Maybe. Thank you. And it leads me, and again, you know, it's a very personal thing to another short poem that you wrote in page 24 that also asks the question, what is okay to ask, what is not okay to ask, and what we find with our brokenness life um, falling from the sky. Would you please read it for us? Sure. Falling from the sky. When we found out our daughter had gone deaf, I did not question God's fairness, not out of faith, but because my whole life it had always seemed that at the next moment, terrible news would fall from the sky as punishment, perhaps for a particular transgression, but more likely because whatever you think could never happen must happen. And in this way, you know clearly there is a world you do not see. I'm going to pray it. <laughs> I'm going to pray it. Um, I have so much. In the, t tell me. 
What do you uh, see in your... What do I see in this poem? I don't know if it's so complex. I, I, I remember writing it and I kind of just, it just kind of came in one shot and just very quickly. Um, I, I guess, you know, it, it was really um, touching back to the theme, that, that first poem that I wrote about, about, you know, uh, when my daughter lost her hearing. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't feel like, you know, God is punishing me or, you know, I did something wrong. Um, I more felt like, you know, I was so floored by the news. It was just so overwhelming and so hard to, to learn. But on the, on the other hand, you kind of feel like uh, this is so unexpected and so strange that you're almost singled out for it. <laughs> and not that I'm, you know, uh, equipped to deal with it. I really, it was really overwhelming and, and, and difficult. Um, but on, on the one hand, you kind of feel like you've been knocked down and knocked over, but it's all, but it's like by design, you feel almost like a kind of spiritual flow coming through this, you know, I guess maybe it's the kind of loss of control in your own life that is humbling in a, in a secular sense. Maybe you'd say that's what it is. You realize you know, there's so much out of your hands and so much out of control. Um, yeah. I also love that you, in a way, in a way, Yoshua, you have there inside yourselves um, the highest priest because you are asking the question, is it okay to be upset? Is it okay to ask the question? And, you know, you, as, as I'm learning from the book, there are other tragedies that are happening when we ask questions, maybe. Um, and... Um, but then you come to a place of, um, I feel, deep belief and also deep, like, Buddhist teaching that, and in this way, you know clearly there is a world you do not see, um, but whatever you think could have never happened must happen. And it's like the deep acceptness. It's like it's, you don't come anymore with a struggle against something, but it's yeah, like yeah. deep living in the moment of what there is. Yeah, kind of release and acceptance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I think it, the poem was born out of that feeling. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I would agree. So I want to ask you either, before we'll end, either one more poem that you will agree, please, to choose and read for us. Okay, sure. Um, uh, this poem, it's called, uh, it's on page 34. It's called One of the Few Jews. One of the few Jews on the R&B scene, he played keyboard for the Marcells of 1961 Blue Moon fame until a voice called him back to the god of his forefathers in the middle of a nightclub solo. Drifting from job to job, he taught algebra in the Jewish day school, tapping his black loafers beneath the teacher's desk. And on the Sabbath, he sat in the front of the synagogue, praying the silent prayer longer than the other men, asking forgiveness for his former life on the road. And because he was a kind-hearted man who pitied the slower students, his voice would rise, obvious to whom, when the others complained he had reviewed the equation one too many times. And before holidays, when only a few students would attend, he'd pull out a red book he kept in his desk and read to us the story from the Talmud of the highway robber who transformed his life and married the great sage's sister. Once, as he turned his back to leave the school building and walk home, I slipped the peel of a banana he had just given me into the opening of his worn leather briefcase. And because I was in 10th grade and he was my teacher, the universe of the small rented attic where he opened his bag to see how his kindness had been repaid did not exist for me. Its absence reinforced the next day when he said nothing in class. After I graduated, I heard that he had married one of two blind twins from his hometown who also played the piano. Then, suddenly, he disappeared without a word. No one in the community ever heard from him again. 
Oh, Mr. Mills, can it be that a soul descends into a body asked to fulfill a mission it cannot complete? This world is cruelest to the best people. Please come back, Mr. Mills. Your wife is silently waiting before the piano in the foyer. Your seat is empty in the front of the shul. And you were the only one in the whole synagogue who knew how to pray. Tell us something. Um, I think, you know, that's this poem um, is just kind of trying to celebrate the earnestness uh, of this, you know, imperfect person uh, and celebrate his imperfection. And um, perhaps in his mind or in the minds of some onlookers, um, he would appear as subpar. But I'm trying to, you know, kind of celebrate how his earnestness really lifts him above the others. I mean, you know, that's a kind of who knows who's lifted above who, who else. And nobody knows you know, what's in, inside the other person's mind and heart. But just the idea that, that, um, that working through the struggle um, and being truthful to oneself um, he is a kind of divine service uh, in, in and of itself, uh, and, and it's cherished, a cherished kind of service. Not, not you know, the image of perfection, but the, the, the difficulty. That's, again, I think, rooted in the idea that I was speaking about how God desires a home in the lowest realm. In uh, the lowest realm literally means our earthly world, but then in each individual life there is... Uh, relative lower realm. We have our glorified moments when everything's going well, and then we have our more challenging moments, our more human or vulnerable moments. And often we look at those moments and say, you know, if only I could push this out of the, to the side, then everything would be good. But really, in, in this kind of thinking, those are the actual moments that are the center stage. Those are the moments where the divine really lives. Um, so we kind of, it's kind of an inversion of of the expectations. It's with the you know, the earthly with the Khan as opposed to the high priest in a way. Yeah, yes. It's remind me the story of the Talmud about this rabbi who came back from the afterworld and he was asked, what do you see? And he said, everyone that we saw in our world that he is like very important person, he is nothing there. And all the people <laughs> who are the nothing, they are very, very above all of us. And it's so much echo knows that them the role of that crazy person in in them in the um, writings of Elie Wiesel who was of course also very in, in, um you know grew up in the Hasidic vision it's one um very in Siget and how much the people that we don't think they know how to pray they can teach us what prayer right. is so Yoshua thank you it was a real gift to have you here And um, thank you so much for writing your book and poetry. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Nikki. I really appreciate it.